Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. My Bible is open to the ninth chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18, our text today. The title of the message, The Justice and the Mercy of God. Now here in chapter 9, Paul is answering several objections of his theme of justification by faith in Christ alone for salvation. Paul has declared all of humanity guilty before God, Jews and Gentiles alike. In chapter 8, he declared that assurance of salvation comes through being united by faith to Christ, and that is the only way to have assurance of salvation. But Paul was human, and he heard the talk, the murmuring, the complaining about his message, and he answered those objections that he often heard systematically, one after the other, here in this three-chapter section of Romans, chapters 9 through 11. The first objection to his message we examined two Sundays ago with a question, what about Israel? If God is so faithful, why did so many of his covenant people reject Jesus? Paul, you're saying that those people will not ultimately go to heaven. And Paul, of course, did teach that. And they were taking that as a failure of God to keep his promises. And as we saw, that was anything but the case. And then last week, we saw that salvation has never been by ethnicity. It's never been the case that all Jewish people were truly children of God. Paul used example after example from the Old Testament. Two of those he used were were Isaac and Ishmael. Brothers by blood, one God chose to use Isaac and the other he did not, Ishmael. Well, if that were not enough, he took the case of twin brothers, Jacob and Esau, and how he chose Jacob to be the one through whom the Messiah would come and Esau was rejected. In other words, salvation has never been by ethnicity. So therefore, Israel's failure to believe in Christ is not because of some failure in God. Paul says, heaven forbid that. Or in some failure of His Word, but because God has always, in His sovereignty, chosen to use a portion of people. A remnant, we would call it. Now that leads to the next objection that we'll face today. It goes something like this. If God chooses to show mercy only to a remnant through salvation... Does not that make God unjust? In other words, if God doesn't save and forgive everybody, God's being unfair, isn't He? Well, Paul answers that objection beginning in chapter 9, verse 14. Let's read it now. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For He says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it does not depend on the man or the man who runs but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Paul begins with this phrase, what then shall we say? Now you can put an equal sign to that and write in your margin, I know what you're thinking. (laughs) That's what Paul says. I know what you're thinking because I've heard it everywhere I go. Paul had been sharing this same message in synagogues all over the Mediterranean region. He had heard these same objections time and time again, so he's ready. And he begins with a question, which really is an answer in disguise. 
He says, there is no injustice with God, is there? He states the anticipated objection and refutes it all in one sentence. And then to emphasize that his answer is no, God is not unjust, he says, may it never be. It's that Greek phrase we've seen so many times already in Romans. Meganoita, perish the thought, absolutely not, it could never happen. And by the way, these objections that Paul's dealing with here in chapter 9 are the same objections you and I deal with when we witness to people. The questions they have concerning the sovereignty of God and salvation. They say if God doesn't save everybody, that makes God a tyrant, I've heard people say. Or makes God unjust, someone not worthy to be followed. But, but first, let's see that God's justice and mercy, unlike what people would say, are not mutually exclusive. They would say you can only be all just or you can only be all mercy, but you can't be both just and merciful at the same time. Paul says that's not the case at all. Look at verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God is declaring to Moses and to all of us through Moses' pen, God's right as a sovereign God to show mercy whenever and to whomever he chooses. Now we're studying the attributes of God on Wednesday evening in this room. I would invite you to come at 6 o'clock. And this past week, the attribute we studied was His sovereignty. And we began with the definition of God's sovereignty, which is this. God's rule and reign over His creation and His right to rule and reign over His creation as He pleases. Would you agree with me that as creator of everything, God has the right to rule and reign over His creation? He does. That's His sovereignty. And it's declared in many portions and in many ways in the Bible. For example, Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His sovereignty rules over all. In other words, He sits on His throne, He does whatever pleases Him. Now, we humans don't always appreciate that aspect of God's sovereignty, do we? That God does whatever and whenever He chooses. Our former pastor here, Dr. Leroy Patterson, had a great sense of humor. And he would often say, I know God is sovereign. I know God is good. I just wish he'd get on my schedule. <laughs> We've often felt that way, right? That maybe we could give God some advice on what he's doing. But God doesn't look at our schedule, doesn't even consider it. And so we don't always like his sovereignty. There are many places in the Bible where we see people not liking God's sovereignty, even his people. I'm thinking of the prophet Jonah. You remember the story. God told Jonah to go down to the city of Nineveh and preach the message of God's wrath and judgment coming on them for their wickedness. Jonah went the opposite direction. God got his attention through a big fish and three days and three nights later that fish threw him up on the beach and ultimately he made his way to Nineveh and preached that message of God's judgment that was coming. And then what did God do? Well, first of all, those people repented. They called out to God for mercy and he heard them and he answered their prayers and he granted them mercy rather than judgment. And you'd think Jonah as a preacher would say, thank the Lord someone finally responded to my message. But he didn't. He got angry with God because he didn't like the Ninevites. He felt they were more deserving of God's wrath than he was and he was mad that God would forgive them. God had to remind him what God told Moses back in the book of Exodus, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy mercy. See, that's what Paul is doing here actually in verse 15. He's quoting Moses or from one of Moses' books he wrote, the book of Exodus, specifically Exodus 33. You know the story. Uh, the, the Hebrew children had been enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years and ultimately uh, they were set free, led by Moses into the wilderness. They began to complain. Uh, 
God called Moses up on the mountain. There he was going to give him what we know as the Ten Commandments. But he stayed longer than the people thought he should. And so they began to complain. And they came to Aaron, Moses' brother, and pressured him into building for them a golden calf that they could worship. And he did that. And when Moses came down from the mountain, he couldn't believe what he saw. And he knew God was going to be displeased with that. Moses himself was displeased and angry with the people. But Moses, as their leader, interceded and begged God to show them mercy rather than just to kill them all. And look, we have to admit, wouldn't God have been just just to kill them all? Let their corpses rot out there in the desert? But he didn't because he's merciful. In fact, here in Exodus 33, he declared his right as sovereign to give mercy to whomever he chooses. And he did give mercy. And most of them were spared. But you remember that the argument that Paul is dealing with is, is Paul, if God doesn't save every single person, he's somehow unjust. But we know even intellectually that's nonsensical. Mercy by definition is God withholding punishment that has been earned and is deserved. So if we deserve something and, and we get it, it's no longer mercy, right? It's something that, that we've done. And, and he wants to stress the point that if God saves anybody, it's not owing to their goodness, it's owing to God's mercy. Probably the clearest place we can see that in the Bible in one verse is Romans 6, 23, which says, for the wages of sin is death. And many of you know this verse. What's the next word? But, which means instead. That is what we have earned through our sinfulness is death, but instead the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Note that mercy here as well as everywhere in the Bible, is a gift. It's not earned. So he goes on to verse 16. He says, so then, that is, because mercy is a gift and not earned, so then it does not depend on the man, he's speaking of all humanity there, who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. That is, if anybody ever is saved, it's owing to God's mercy rather than what that man has done. And so we know that showing mercy to someone does not violate justice. I want to show you that first in the New Testament, and then I'll show you from practical experience. I was reading my Bible this week and came to Matthew chapter 20 and read a parable that I uh, hadn't thought about in some time. It, it was of a landowner, a farmer. He had a vineyard. And like most farmers, uh, he didn't have enough work to do every day of the year, so he had seasonal workers. And if you've ever worked on a farm, you know there's certain times of the year that require a lot more manual labor than others. And so what farmers will do, they'll go to town and find some day laborers and bring them back to the farm. And when the work is done, they're free to go their way. And so that's the story Jesus told. A man went down to the Home Depot, or, or the equivalent thereof, looking for some day laborers. And he found some early in the morning and says, you guys want to work today? And they said, we sure do. He says, well, I'll give you a, a denarius, which was a very typical day's pay for a farm laborer. It's fair to everybody. And they said, okay, we'll do it. They came and they worked all day. Well, he could tell he needed some more workers. So about lunchtime, he went back to that place and found some more guys waiting for work and said, you guys want to work? And they said, yeah. He said, I'll give you a denarius if you work the rest of the day. Came back at the end of the day, just a couple hours left of work and said, you guys want to finish out the day working for me? He says, yeah, we sure will. And he and so the point is, 
Some worked all day, some worked half a day, some worked just the end of the day. And in those days, they paid at the end of the day. And so they lined up to get their pay. And he started with the ones that only worked an hour or two. And he gave them a full day's pay. And so the guys that had worked all day started rubbing their hands. They go, well, if he pays them a full day pay, he's going to give us two or three days pay. When we came to them, they stuck out their palm. Guess what they got? One day's pay. And you know what they began to holler? The same thing your kids began to holler. That's a southern statement. They began to holler, that's not fair. And do you know what the landowner, who obviously is God, said? I have not done you any injustice. I told you what I was going to pay you, and I did. What's it to you if I pay someone else something else? That has nothing to do with you. Well, the point is God's sovereign. He sits on his throne. He does whatsoever he pleases. God is not showing anyone injustice when he shows mercy to someone. Now, we know this from practical experience. We don't need a biblical parable. Let's just make up a story. Let's say, because after all, we live in Texas, and we have something called capital punishment here. Let's say that 10 men committed murder, and they are all tried together, and they were all found guilty, and they all went to prison to await carrying out of their sentence, and the day came for them to be executed, and the governor called and told the warden, I am going to commute the sentence of prisoner Smith and prisoner Jones. And the warden says, what about the rest of these guys? He says, prisoner Smith and prisoner Jones. Let me ask you a question. Has the governor been unjust? No. He, like God, has shown mercy to some. So it's not a violation of God's attribute of justice that he doesn't save every single person. So Paul gets that out of the way right away. In fact, what Paul is declaring is that this has always been true, and so it is historically consistent, which is our second point. Historical consistency. Verse 17, for the Scripture, and Paul goes way back in history, to Pharaoh, for the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Do you find it as interesting as I do that Paul doesn't use psychology? He doesn't use manipulation? He uses the Bible to make all of his points. Doesn't that sound like Jesus when he was being tempted of Satan out in the wilderness those 40 days and Satan would tempt him to do something and he would quote scripture. I think that's good advice to all of us, right? There's something we don't understand. Go to the scripture. And so it goes all the way back, remember here at the beginning of chapter 9 to Abraham. And he showed how God chose Abraham out of all the people of the earth. Not because he was any better or more moral, he wasn't but so that God's purposes would be accomplished. And then he went down the next generation, Isaac and Ishmael. He chose Isaac, he rejected Ishmael. The next generation, he chose Jacob, rejected Esau. And now he comes to the favorite patriarch for most Jewish people, Moses. And now he contrasts the way that God dealt with Moses and the way that God dealt with Pharaoh. We say, well, that's a no-brainer. Moses was a good and godly man, had a lot of faith. Let me remind you that Moses was a murderer. Moses killed a man in anger and he was on the run for many years. Pharaoh, of course, was a tyrant and a dictator and a murderer. But the point is both of them deserved God's wrath and yet God chose to use Moses to be the means that his people were saved and Pharaoh he used to show judgment. 
The point is that God's choosing some to show mercy is not inconsistent with his nature throughout human history. Now, the next attribute of God we're going to study this Wednesday in this room is his immutability, which means he does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the way I like to say it here is that God didn't undergo a makeover on the blank page in your Bible between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's still God. And, and Paul is calling them back hundreds of years in the past. Say God was God with Moses and Pharaoh, and he's still God today. He sits on his throne. He does whatsoever he uses. He purposes. But truthfully, historic consistency is not the primary point Paul is making by using Pharaoh, I don't think here. Rather, his point seems to be that God showing mercy to some and leaving others in their sin, as he did with Pharaoh, both serve the same purpose. What is that purpose? Well, remember I said earlier that when God says he will show mercy to whomever he will show mercy, he's quoting from Exodus 33. And when he talks about what Pharaoh was told by God, he's going back even farther in the past to Exodus chapter 9. In fact, I want you to see this with your own eyes because I don't think some of you trust me, okay? I'm teasing. I want you to see it with your own eyes. Go back, please, to the front of your Bible, the second book of the Bible, Roman, excuse me, Exodus chapter 9, beginning in 13. Because I'm afraid if we don't, some of us will think this was in the movie. It was actually in the Bible. This part of the story was not in the movie, but it is in the Bible. And here's the story. God sent Moses to confront Pharaoh to say, let my people go. He says, no. And then he said he would, and then he changed his mind. He kept doing that over and over. God would send a plague. He'd say, take the people. He'd change his mind, send another plague. On and on it went. And so we're in the midst of these plagues when we come to chapter 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason... I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Still you exalt against my people by not letting them go. Now, ten plagues come upon Pharaoh and uh, Scripture says he hardened his heart. And then it says he hardened, God hardened his heart. And it goes back and forth like that. But here we have the answer to one of the greatest and most fundamental questions that all people have. Why does God do some of the things he does? Do you ever have that question of why? We all do. And God answers the question fundamentally here. For this reason. Mark that in your Bible. Underline it. For this reason. God is about to explain himself. And by the way, does God have to explain himself to humans? No. No more than you have to explain yourself to your children. Less so, but he's gracious and he's merciful and he does. And he says, here's why. For this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all of the earth. That is another way of saying for his own glory. I told you before that my wife teaches our four children theology through a catechism. 
They start when they're three years old and they finish when they, the day they turn 13. They're to answer all over 100 theological questions by rote memory. And the very first question is, who made you? Liza, who made you? God made you. Second question, why did God make you and all things? Liza? For his glory. She knows that. She's been taught that all of her life. You need to hear that. I need to hear that. Whether we're seven or 70, God does all things for his glory. And he said so even to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, a man who thought he was sovereign but was not. In fact, our church believes this truth so much that when we sat down to write our core beliefs, the very first one is SDG. Soli, Deo, Gloria, everything only for God's glory. So why did God save anyone? For his own glory. Why does God not save everyone? For his own glory. Both Pharaoh, Moses, Isaac, Ishmael, Jacob, and Esau. He dealt with them the way he did for the same reason, for his own glory. So, what's the answer to the question? Is God being unjust not to save everyone? No! A thousand times no. God shows mercy, and just because he shows mercy to some does not make him unjust. And, and let me make one more important point. I think it's fundamental to the understanding of the gospel. God's mercy and justice are both on display at the same time and in the same place at the cross of Christ. God's mercy and justice are most clearly seen at the cross. Remember that the charge is that God's mercy is somehow unjust. And just as Jesus and just as Paul used the scriptures to make their point, I want to make that point from the scriptures. Psalm 85.10, I think sums it up perfectly which says, mercy and truth are met together. That is, they are occupying the same space. Comma, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. You see, the charge is, Paul, God's justice and his mercy are oil and water. They can't exist in the same place. And Paul is arguing, yes, they can. He says, in fact, the psalmist says, and I'm saying, that God has declared it forever, that mercy and truth, which is a synonym of righteousness and justice, are meeting together. In fact, they're living harmoniously. And that's what he means when he says righteousness and peace have kissed each other. They're getting along quite well in God's mind. And let me ask you a question. Where do we see this illustrated most perfectly? God's sense of justice and God's attribute of mercy coming together Clearly, it's at the cross, isn't it? Because it's at the cross that God shows his justice. What is God's justice? Well, we have a hard time understanding because we don't know anyone like this. God's justice is that he hates sin all the time. And he must punish all sin. And even the most just human you know, we can't say that of. Because we're inconsistent. That's part of what it means to be human, right? We're capricious. 
One day we hate our sin, the next day we're rejoicing in it, right? One day we get mad at something we see someone's done on the news, and when we hear it in one of our friends, we dismiss it as unimportant. God's not like that. He hates all sin all the time. That's the first thing Paul said in the book of Romans chapter 1. He's not like us. That's God's justice. He has to punish sin. But God has also declared in Exodus 33 and countless other verses in the Bible that he's a God of mercy, slow to anger, offering forgiveness. That's who he is. That's his nature. So how can God be both of those things? How can he punish sin and his justice and show mercy at the same time? Two words. Write it down in your margin. Substitutionary atonement. This is how God, in his secret counsels, developed his plan where both his justice and mercy could exist in the same place. He would send his son into the world, become a human, live a perfect life so that he would be qualified to die or substitute for sinners like us. You see, we deserve death and hell, don't we? Scripture says, I thank you that you have not dealt with me as I deserved. That's just the definition of mercy. And God says this is on display at the cross. God has to punish sin. Someone's got to pay for this, for God's justice to be satisfied. But God so loved the world, John 3, 16, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, that is, suffer the consequences of their own sin, but instead they'd have what? Eternal life. That's the gospel. God doesn't violate his own justice by showing mercy, and he doesn't violate mercy by showing justice to Christ. In fact, here's how brilliant it is. God says he imputes Christ's righteousness to our account. So we are truly righteous in his eyes. It's not just he's pretending it. He actually imputes Christ's righteousness to us and our sinfulness is imputed to Christ on the cross. And God is satisfied with that. And it makes sense to him. And his righteousness, his justice, and his mercy kiss at the cross. They're in perfect harmony with one another. And how do we know God is satisfied with Christ's sacrifice at the cross? The tomb is empty. The resurrection declares for all humanity, Christ satisfied God's justice. So how do you get in on that? If you're here today and you know not the Lord. Belief. Not through any works, not through trying to spend the last quarter of your life making up for the first three quarters where you made a mess of it. It's not trying to balance out the scales as your neighbors believe. It's coming to an end of yourself and say, Lord, I'm helpless and I am hopeless. And I agree with you. I agree with Romans 3.23 that I've sinned and fall short of your glory. I agree with Romans 6.23 that says... I deserve death. But I believe the rest of Romans 6.23 that you offer a gift of salvation through grace and mercy, through belief on Jesus Christ. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You say, Pastor, what if I'm not one of the chosen? Come close and I'll tell you the secret. If God puts a burden on your heart that you're a sinner and he gives you the faith to call out to Jesus, that means you're one of the chosen. <laughs> Right? That's the evidence that you've been born again. It's, it's repentance and faith. 
You don't have to fear. And, and let me just say it this way. There's never been a person, never been a person who has ever come to Jesus in genuine contrition over sin and asked him for forgiveness that he said, no, that's not for you. And you're not going to be the first one, okay? If you'll come to Jesus, ask for forgiveness, he'll forgive you'll, you'll be forgiven and you'll be born again. Amen? Let's thank the Lord for his justice and his mercy. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And it's, it's a hard word. We know that. But it's a true word. You are both at the same time God of justice and God of mercy. And the greatest illustration of that is Jesus. How he willingly took our punishment that we deserved so that we not only could go free, but that we could be made new, that we could enjoy eternal life. Father, I say on behalf of every Christian here today, thank you. And Lord, I want to intercede and intervene for someone here who is not yet a Christian. Maybe who struggles with these things. And today your spirit, through the proclaimed message, has convicted their heart of their own sin guilt. Your perfect righteousness and the deserved judgment to come. Maybe they're wondering, what shall I do to be saved? The answer's not changed in 2,000 years. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart and you'll be saved. So Father, I pray you'd grant faith and repentance to someone here today. Father, I pray you'd give us all boldness as we go out this week to take this good news message wherever we go. And Lord, whatever fruit it bears in the week ahead, when we come back next week, we're gonna thank you for it and give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.